Welcome to Credit Hour, a weekly thought-provoking conversation with the brightest minds from the University of South Dakota. They get the credit, we ask the questions. This is Credit Hour. On the next few episodes of Credit Hour, we'll get back to some of our usual programming with several episodes we recorded before school transitioned to remote learning in early February. First up is Professor Patrick Geary, a widely cited constitutional law scholar from the USD School of Law. We speak about a range of topics from his life and career to the First Amendment, evolution of media, and intellectual freedom. Professor Gary, how are you doing today? I'm doing great. Um, well, first of all, we want to talk a little bit just about you and how you got to USD and you know how you started your career. Um, you know, I checked your uh, resume, I, I guess, on the USD website um, previous year. Minnesota uh, guy, it seems like a, gold, a golden gopher. Um, so you got your bachelor's degree, law degree, and a PhD from the University of Minnesota, correct? From University of Minnesota, right. So tell me, uh, tell me about that. I guess did you grow up in Minnesota? What led you to the Twin Cities? I, I did. I grew up in southern Minnesota in a town called Fairmont, right on the um, Iowa border. And right on I ninety, so a lot of people from uh, I think more people from South Dakota know about Fairmont than Minnesotans do because <laughs> if you go east, you're going to go through Fairmont. Right. So I guess did you have aspirations then as a as a young person of living in the cities, or, or what kind of led you to the Twin Cities, or was that just the natural choice then when you were making your decision to go to college? Yeah, I don't know that I ever thought about going to the Twin Cities. Um, I. Um, uh, it just that's where you know th- that's where the law school was um uh, and once i went to law school you know that i got a job there in a firm in minneapolis so i, I didn't really ever think i i think where i was going to live actually i just ended up there you know did you know that you wanted to go to law school um in an early age or what i guess kind of inspired that part of your journey I think it was fairly early. I remember being a kid, um, and uh, my father had a good friend who was a lawyer, and um, you know I got to know him very well. and And I think it was really uh, him who kind of got me interested in it. And I, so I just always thought I would do it. Yes. Interested. So did did you? I guess what were you like as a kid then? Were you fairly studious? I was, I was, I was a great kid. Yeah, I was, <laughs> I was a fabulous kid. <laughs> so we'll hear no stories I mean, from from that era. But I, I mean, seriously, in all seriousness, you know, I think that were you inspired by sort of the pursuit of justice, or was it the theoretical nature aspect of it? What what made you want to be a lawyer? Well, let me see. I, I, I like the, the office that the guy had, you know. <laughs> well, well I got to ask, what firm then did you practice when you got out of the University of Minnesota? Briggs & Morgan. Okay. Okay. That, so that's a large firm in Minneapolis and St. Paul. Um, I was kidding about that. I mean, what made me want to? I really don't know. I'm sure like, you know, every young person, you kind of, you're, you're attracted to the the ideals of it, you know, the justice ideals, but then you're also attracted by the, the drama of it. You know, there's certainly plenty of books and movies about lawyers, um, and, you know, and um, I really couldn't, I mean, honestly, I really couldn't say because I think I was attracted to, to a, a whole facet of things about the, uh, the profession. Um, what's your PhD in? In American constitutional history. Interesting. So obviously there was a lot of overlap um, right. with law school. So were you working at Briggs & Morgan while finishing your PhD, or did you wait until you were sort of done with that program fully before you went into private practice? No, I really just, um, 
I, I really, um, I, I got a, uh, a scholarship after uh, college to study, and so I just studied there at the University of, of Minnesota under a, a historian by the name of Paul Murphy, and uh, so it was a two-year scholarship to, that you couldn't use in law school, but you could use uh, huh. for someone. So I took uh, history courses uh, from him, and um, uh, I took that, and I got a master's, and then like the first week of school, so it, my story about a PhD is a story of pure accident. It really <laughs> is, um, and, it, and a lot of people who get PhDs Get, get kind of jealous because I backed into this. And I was walking through, through the hallways. Law school started about three weeks before the, um, the regular university, and I ran into Paul Murphy, and he said, Why, you never took this particular class of mine. Why don't you take it now? Uh, and I said, well, I'm in law school. And he says, I know, but, but take it. The credits will count. And so I took it. And that was just the beginning step. And after that, he just said, why don't you just keep taking courses? You know? And... Um, you're in law school, so you know what it's like. And, and uh, you know, taking history courses was always kind of a, a pleasure, you know, because it's fun to read and it's interesting in a way that law, you know, is different than law. And so I just took the courses throughout my, um, my law school career. That was also back when you p- paid a flat fee for tuition. So if you were fool enough to take as many classes as you want to, you could <laughs> with no cost. Um, well, that makes me laugh just because it – it is illuminating in the way I think even you teach in class. I'm in a, a, a class that you teach right now, media law, um, and just kind of I didn't really know your background in history, and, and we do talk a lot about the history of the First Amendment, and that's what, something that we want to get into um, in our discussion today. Before we do that, though, I want to I want to just talk about you a little bit more. And so, when you were at Briggs and Morgan, how long were you in private practice? Yeah, when do we get to talk about you then? Well, you know what? That's a good question. I I'm the host, so I don't know if we ever get. To yeah, talk you're going to be I more asked, interesting than I. I am. think I asked the questions. We've got something about that in the yeah, intro. typical media guy, you know. Yeah, uh-huh. yeah, well. <laughs> Um, but no, how long how long were you in private practice? Uh, quite a while. So um, I was in private practice for about um, seventeen or eighteen years. Okay. Yeah, and then I came here to South Dakota. And so, obviously, your interest was in constitutional law, um, sort of. Uh, in your PhD program, is that what you were able to practice then, like appellate advocacy, or, or what side civilly did you practice on? Well, I really started off just practicing in a general commercial litigation practice, uh, but then I, I had the uh, chance to start representing media and communications mm-hmm. clients. So, you know, I was able to use, you know, some of that First Amendment background in representing them. And that was the time of. You know, in the in the uh, like uh, late 1990s, you know, was in a time when so much of the media was really changing. You know, the internet was coming on, and and uh, and and all kinds of different companies were scrambling for what kind of services they were going to offer, what kind of areas they were going to get into. So there was a lot of activity. Um, well, let's get into, I guess, the First Amendment and media law. Um, I mean, you kind of started class by I thought given a really effective overview. And, and one kind of question you posed was just, you know, what the First Amendment meant to the framers and the founders um, as they understood it and how, I guess, then the history of 
how the First Amendment has evolved and how jurisprudence has evolved around it is obviously informed from that standpoint. One thing I thought that was really interesting is you talked about the competitive nature um, of the press at the time, I guess, of the Revolutionary War, that it was relatively inexpensive to start a, a printing press business. And it made me laugh because I just thought with like the invention of blogs and social media, like the more things change, the more they stay the same, right? Um, I don't know if you can just initially just talk about the framers and how they understood the First Amendment and maybe what they were ultimately trying to protect um, when they enumerated, you know, that power. Sure. And for a minute before I do that, when you were talking about the competitive nature of the press back in the, um, you know, the early constitutional period, in a way, like, look what you and Adam are doing right here, you know. So because of this technology, you're able to uh, essentially run a, a, a like a press venue here. Um with very little, uh, you know, you know, uh, like overhead. Don't tell way. the FEC on us, I guess. We, I really appreciate that. <laughs> I don't. Th- I think they're going to look kindly on what you're doing. <laughs> uh, so anyway, um, oh, yeah, the framers and the First Amendment. Well, uh, you, you know, the First Amendment actually got ratified and drafted very quickly because the, the whole debate at the time was over the Constitution itself. And there were Federalists and Anti-Federalists. And the Federalists wanted the Constitution. The Anti-Federalists were very cautious of it. Um, and the reason the Federalists wanted the Constitution is because after the um, independence was gained from England, uh, the government set up with the Articles of Confederation, the very, very weak federal government. But at the time, you know, the federal governments were seen in the light of the English Empire. And, of course, Americans did not like the English Empire because they just revolted against that. And so they didn't want a, a strong federal government. They had essentially an Articles of Confederation government, really, which was just the states banding together with a very weak federal government. So uh, people thought that, um, you know, we, that we can't survive as a nation like this because we have no core in a way, no powerful core. And um, when the uh, movement for the Constitution came about, the anti-federalists really, you know, pushed back against that. They didn't want a strong federal government because they were afraid of all the excesses and abuses of the type that occurred during the English reign uh, occurred. Um, And the First Amendment kind of became part of that because the anti-federalists, part of their campaign was we want a Bill of Rights. If you pass this, if if we agree to this, um, we need a Bill of Rights, and the First Amendment was part of that. A lot of the debate really is is, is what did the anti-federalists hope to achieve by the Bill of Rights or the the, uh, First Amendment? and many people would say, well, they wanted to protect certain natural rights. Um, and I believe that, there are, that we do have natural rights and that the, the amendments recognize those. But I actually think the motivation was for uh, a limitation on government rather than, uh, uh, rather than any kind of specific recognition. I mean... They protected speech because they saw saw speech as a natural right, but I'm not sure they wanted to kind of codify that. Because when you look at the debates, there just isn't many debates. It happened very fast. And I think that that for the the time, the anti-federalists really wanted to just a means of limiting government in the way that the Constitution didn't originally limit government. And so, you know, and... 
And part of the reason that I love the analogy when you just kind of talked about the basic mechanics of how the press operates, and that's why this this course is. We have a First Amendment course also at um, the USD Law School, and this one's a little bit different because it focuses on media apparatus and how, I guess, regulations and laws have developed to affect them. And it it I guess again added to my understanding of, of that period in history because you you know get taught as a child about you know. Um, you know, common sense by uh, I think Thomas Paine, and and how that precipitated, you know, the political movements of that time. And so, I mean, they must have been aware of how the press operated and its importance in the Revolutionary War. You know, were they afraid of it though? Too. I mean, at, at what point? Um, you know, and I know that we've we've talked about it in other um, legal classes as well. Just like how vigorous the debates were and how um, challenging they were and how vitriolic they were. I mean, we think about today how, you know, our, our politics are partisan. But they were pretty partisan back then. If you read what they were writing about each other, sometimes anonymously, right? And so uh, how did they balance that? How did they, did they seek to strike a balance or was that something that they were concerned about? Yeah, that's a hard question to answer, really, because when you read, like, James Madison and the Federalist Papers, you know, James Madison, of course, saw the danger of factions. And, uh, you know, when the Constitution was ratified, there was never a vision, there was never a thought that political parties would uh, end up uh, uh, developing. So the, the, the election of between Adams and Jefferson in 1800 was, uh, it's called the Revolution of 1800, because their political parties kind of came into being. Adams' Federalist Party and Jefferson's Democratic-Republican Party. Um, so anyway, that's a, a roundabout answer to your question. There was a lot they just didn't foresee. They saw dangers, of course, in democracy. They saw that there were all kinds of dangers in democracy. That's why we don't have a true democracy. We have a republic um, because of all these checks and balances. Um, but I think there was a lot they didn't anticipate. They, they, I, I don't think they ever anticipated how the, the media would develop. But you're right. They, they very much valued it because the media at the time helped the uh, cause for independence. The media provide a kind of the, the, the communication venue for the colonies to communicate with each other and to unite uh, in this cause. And, you know, one thing, again, that we've discussed, discussed in class is then how that has shifted over time. And then, you know, as the 19th century developed, I guess the media industry became less competitive or at least larger corporations and companies began to take ownership of, of you know, particular markets. And it decreased the amount of direct access maybe that um, people had to the way public debates were um, articulated in the press. Um, I don't know if you, you can talk about that and the evolution of that. I mean, was that just a product of technology and shifting um, you know, societal norms? Um, was it a concerted effort to control the flow of information? Was it, or was it by pure accident? I, I'd be curious to know. Yeah, I'd call it evolution if I was going to use a word. But so during the constitutional period, you'd have these small printers, and they constituted the American press. Uh, and during the war uh, for independence, you had the loyalist 
press who was loyal to the crown, and then you had the patriot press that was in favor of uh, the cause of independence. Um, the patriot press outnumbered the loyalist press. But there wasn't even at, during that time this sense of freedom of the press like we think. Like, really, the, the drafters of the First Amendment, um, I, I think if they could have passed some law restricting the loyalist press, they probably would have done so. Because um, uh, uh, President Adams, you know, signs over the Alien and Sedition Act, which punishes dissent of, of, or, or criticism of government. So, right. um, y- you know, th- this has been an evolution in terms of, of, of the, the country ratified the First Amendment, but I'm not sure it knew exactly what it was ratifying, you know, and it just had to take some evolution. But to, to, to trace the, the history of the press, yeah, it started off as small printers that came into business and went out of business, um, the, uh, it, it didn't cost much to be a printer. Uh, you didn't make a lot of money, at least selling newspapers. You might do other things like government notices. Uh, but um, uh, as time went on, you referenced the late 19th century. You know, but by the late 19th century, this was the Gilded Era in, in American history. This was the, the, industri- the period of industrialization. This was after the Civil War. This was when, when uh, industrialization was really heating up. Companies were getting bigger. Um, but the, the population of the country was also exploding because of um, immigration. Cities were exploding. And it was just because of that then that newspapers, you know, just saw a business opportunity. Um, the, uh, cities were so much bigger in the late um, 1800s than they were in the late 1700s. So they had a bigger market. Right. And then they developed a printing press, which could pump out thousands and thousands and thousands of issues of, of a newspaper. And so, you know, because of a lot of those economic forces, you had newspapers getting bigger and bigger, and the more and the bigger they got, the bigger ones tended to crowd out or buy up the smaller ones. And so you you began kind of a period of of monopolization, at least in the print press, that was going to exist really, um, you know, for the for the next century. You know, to the point that now we almost never see cities with competing newspapers in them. No, and, and for me, you know, it brings up the notions of yellow journalism, mm-hmm. and um, and and again, I think it's one of those where uh, people have rose-colored glasses about bygone eras, and maybe the press has never been fair. Maybe the um, you know press has always been biased, but. You know, I think about it in in class. I remember kind of thinking in my head, like, is that where maybe um, antagonism with the press, um, suspicion of, you know, the manipulation and the influence that the press can have sort of begins um, is somewhat there. Where does the antagonism with with media come from? Is it media's influence over current events, its relationship to power, the way it negotiates access with that sometimes. Um, what are your thoughts on that? Sure. So uh, there's always been a certain, you know, conflict between like uh, politics and media, you know. So is there always a suspicion of the press? Well, let's say if you're the president of the United States, you want to get good coverage. And if the press is going to criticize you, you don't like that. So there's always been that to some degree throughout history. Um and you mentioned earlier that, that the, the media used to be uh, 
so much more um, so much more heated in a way than it is now. And yeah, like in the late nineteenth century, some of the stuff that went out over the media on 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 political events and politicians was extremely vitriolic, you know, um, more so than it is today. Uh, but I think today is different. Then we went from late. 19th century when there was all of this yellow journalism and 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 the 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 vitriol was pretty intense to a period of what you might call professionalization you know and then doing like for instance the um like uh, president franklin roosevelt you know he had polio and hence was severely restricted in the use of his legs so he had to use a wheelchair and when he did stand up, he had to use braces. He didn't want the press to cover that, to show him in that kind of condition. And the press went along with it. And they didn't show that, you know. Um, it, it, there's stories, of, obviously, of President Kennedy, you know, um, uh, and some of the things that he did and some of the things that the press didn't cover about him that, that, that the press didn't think was relevant to the you know, public discourse. So there was a time period then in the 20th century where where the press um, kind of laid off of, you know, uh, the kind of relationship maybe it now has, right? Uh, and so it still tried to do its job about political issues, but it considered private life, for instance, and whatever might go under that heading to be off limits. That's obviously not the case today, and I think what how I would describe it is that there's always an antagonism between government and the press, or between politicians and the press, but I think today now the press is far more politicized, um, and, um, and, and that's different, and it's politicized in a way maybe like it was, you know, during the constitutional period back during the revolutionary war it's politicized because there you had media entities with, that were known as the patriot press and then media entities or printers known as like the loyalist press so they only took one side of it they only gave you one picture and in a way what we have now is is uh you know somewhat like that but it, 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 it's politicized, of course, in a way that is just it, it's very sort of deeply embedded in both the press and in society, I think. What I think is interesting, I guess, about the evolution, and maybe this was the question I was trying to ask earlier is, you know, I, I agree. It's, it's weird how, you know, it's, it's kind of gone full, full circle. But you've had this period where, um, and you've talked about it, you kind of coined it like the professionalization of journalism. And... Uh, the objective nature of journalism. And again, I think people maybe started to lose confidence in that a little bit, right? But yet, I think that, you know, regardless of what a poll might say about, you know, how much people trust the press, I think there's still an idea that factually accurate, objective news coverage is important to a democracy, right? And it concerns me that... You know, in, in some sense, I feel like when it was the Patriot Press and the Loyalist Press, you knew where the allegiances stood and no one was trying to I mean, they, they thought they were right and they would, you know, make a full hearted defense of, of their cause. Um, but they didn't try to coin themselves as objective, I guess. And maybe they did. I, I'm, I, I'm not 100 percent sure. Is there a danger in the way that media now isn't more transparent maybe about their conflicts, isn't more transparent about their politics, would that make for 
better press because then you could just trust people to make their own inferences about biases and about you know how they weigh the credibility of those media organizations? Well, you tell me, but even if the press doesn't admit it, it seems like it's fairly transparent as to what their biases might be. So maybe not every entity you know, broadcasts it and admits it, but it seems to me somewhat obvious. Um, um, and what's interesting, you use the word objective. So during this professionalization period in the 20th century, you know, when I think the press did seek to be like, um, you know, when you had CBS News with Walter Cronkite, you had the New York Times and the Washington Post, they sought to be objective entities uh, and to serve this role. If you notice now, the press never uses the word objective. Do you, I mean, you tell me if you ever hear the press, like in the past, you know, the New York Times would, would say, we are all of these things, objective. You know, objective would be right. The press never uses that word. So it, it, that's pretty telling. But I think it has a lot to do, when you think about that, it has a lot to do with um, not just the press, but also with society in general, you know, in terms of like notions of relativism, et cetera. Do you think that that is problematic that media is not aspirational towards that end? Or do you think it's more honest? Well, at least it's honest if that's how they're going to be, you know, if they're not going to be objective. But I think also the very notion of objectivity has been eroded, right? It, it, like, for instance, um, uh, you know, here in, in, in South Dakota, if you know, if you go into the philosophy departments or that sort of thing, do we is there objective truth? You know, ask a, a, a ask a a, a um, professor. Tell me, objective we're going to have to get a proof. fourth degree for you, professor. Yeah, okay, oh, well, <laughs> here you go. What was my third degree? Oh yeah, okay. Um, you're going to give me the third degree, but I'm going to get the fourth degree. Um, I think if you, I, I don't know that it, at least, you know, at certain levels of society, I don't know that we believe in objective truth. Right. So if you don't believe in objective truth as a society, how could you expect the press to be objective? But that's where I say you can fault the press for not being objective. Um, but I don't know. It also might just be a reflection of where we are as society at this point in time. Um, to shift gears here for a second, I guess, how did media law develop around the advent of new technologies like radio and what sort of impact did that have on issues surrounding like the First Amendment? Yeah, so, well, you know, the, the First Amendment really didn't do anything um, for like 150 years because there really weren't the court really never decided any First Amendment cases. Um, think about this when. Uh, President Adams, um, you know, signs into law the Alien and Sedition Act, which um, which uh, criminalizes seditious libel. Clearly, that's against the First Amendment today. But here, this was a generation that ratified the First Amendment. They didn't really, they obviously didn't think twice about passing it. Um, and then, of course, during the Civil War, you had um, uh, the the federal government then um, uh, punishing all kinds of sort of suspected. Uh, spies or dissidents uh, and taking away civil rights then. So the First Amendment didn't really come into play at all until, you know, the early 20th century. And then when it did come into play, it oftentimes came into play as a reaction. 
And then when we talk about the media, the media changed because of technology and, and um, you know, social tastes. So you get the media coming in and then the law responds. Uh, so, you know, we had the printing presses been around since Gutenberg and people felt comfortable with the printing press and there was a certain expectation uh, applied to print media. But when radio comes into being, that really upends everything that we think about, you know, how society is going to be organized because society has always been organized along communication grounds. That's how you build society, you know. And if we're going to change that, the, the foundation of society then doesn't, isn't that going to change society? People were afraid of that. So um, from, from radio to broadcast television to cable television and now to all the numerous, you know, Internet-based uh, technologies, the law has sort of continually adjusted. I think in the, in the past, the law is very fearful of technology. Um, as were the courts, as with society in general. But, you know, now, and we've sort of talked a little bit about this in class, now it seems like in the last 20 or 30 years, that fear has gone away. Um, and maybe it's gone away too far to the point that there's just been such an, like, unquestioning embrace of anything that, um, that, that further is like the spread of information in whatever way it might further it. I mean, without you know, any second thoughts applied to it. Well, and one concept that we've talked about in class is the marketplace of ideas. I guess, what does that phrase mean to you? I don't know if you can tell us quick, maybe it's history. And is it an accurate, again, like value ideal to be striving for? Yeah, well, Justice Holmes used that phrase, um, you know, back just about a century ago. But even further, it was used by people that were trying to formulate some vision of, of academic freedom here at universities and, and, and describing that academic freedom in terms of marketplace of ideas. Uh, I think it, it really kind of means the way it sounds. A marketplace of ideas means that that you don't put any boundaries on what comes into it. You want the marketplace to be as free and open as possible. And that's sort of out of that marketplace. Then the best ideas get chosen through the free choices of, of members of that society. So then do you think that I guess First Amendment jurisprudence is in a healthy place. Is society's view of of the First Amendment healthy? What do you think? I don't know. I mean, because it. I mean, we just. You, it's kind of what you just said, where it has the pendulum swung too far in the other direction, and should oh, internet companies like Facebook and Twitter be more regulated and be more held accountable for the information that they broadcast, especially when you consider that not only have they like simultaneously, you know, allowed or or provided a platform for the spread of fake information, but they, they were also simultaneously undermining objective, you know, institutions, if we want to call them that, maybe not, um, real media organizations who just were unable to compete. You know, they were trying to develop their own websites, but when everybody was on Facebook and you could link to the CNN article for free, I mean, that's, I mean, 
that's in part what has undermined right local newspapers. I mean, there's a lot of factors, but but that's been one of them. And so they, in some sense, they've both killed a more, I guess, policed or professionalized class of journalism, and you know, promoted the opposite. I don't know. What do you? I mean, that's what I mean. I, I don't know. What do you think? Yeah. Well. <laughs> So you bring up a you bring up a number of issues. Uh, I'll just deal with that last one you brought up about like the role of journalists. So r- journalists, as a, 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 in their role, have clearly sort of declined from 50 years ago. It, they've declined from like the era of Watergate, Vietnam, the civil rights movement. Like the the high point of I, I think of of American journalism occurred in the 1960s and 70s. Um, you know, when, when journalists were really seen in a, in a very kind of heroic light. Um, and, uh, you know, so their role has declined be, in part because the, you know, like the entities they work for have declined. Uh, and like, um, you know, I mean, who knows how many journalists you and Adam are driving out of business right here, you know, because... <laughs> <laughs> um, but... You know, you don't need to have a, a, a journalism degree anymore to do what journalists can do. You can still run a podcast. You can still run a, a website. You can, you know, you can do any number of different things. You can participate in, in some kind of, you know, uh, you know, um, social media exchange. So, you know, there's been technology has changed. Um, I, I think trust level has changed too. That the, the the public doesn't maybe trust, or maybe it came to a point that they didn't value what journalists did as much, and so they were more open to, you know, looking elsewhere and maybe less concerned about what might happen to journalists. I think there's just been a whole lot of different things that have occurred: technology, social tastes, maybe the um, the the the. The instances which journalists have, you know, abused their position or maybe not upheld what the, what the public expected of them. You know, and so I, I don't want to take up too much more of your time. I know we've probably gone over, but um, one last issue I wanted to talk about was the concept of academic freedom and how that relates to First Amendment issues. And I, I mean, I, I think that as political pressures have increased, social tension seems to be at a higher level. That's translated into academia, or or at least on college campuses, it seems that some of those inflection points um, manifest themselves and the way speakers are invited to campus or the way faculty um, is judged on their opinions. I'm curious what your thoughts are just kind of having a broad understanding of the history of the First Amendment. Is academic freedom in danger um, generally? I mean, is that a threat? or Is that something that we should be concerned about? How would you define academic freedom? I mean, I would think that it'd be the ability to, in a vacuum, talk about concepts and ideas without... mm, being mollified by the political pressures that you know they may set off. That's a pretty good definition. And then what's your judgment then on is well, that I don't being know. threatened? I mean, I don't know. I mean, that's that's my thing. I mean, because I, I think it's hard sometimes to judge, again, with social media, with the increasing partisan nature of press, you don't know what's the mountain and what's the molehill, right? And so you see... Uh, 
you know, fairly vitriolic reaction between a student and a college professor. You know, this just happened in a state pretty recently to us. And it's hard to understand what what's really happening there because you don't know the context of the entire interaction right. and you don't see the 15 minutes leading up to it and you don't see the 15 minutes after it. And so you have a maybe 15, 30 second social media video that I think everyone would probably like to delete if they could because it doesn't reflect anyone in a good light. And how do you figure that out? And then especially when it's somebody's jobs at play or somebody's ability to learn is at stake. I mean, these are important priorities. I mean, this stuff is important. And how, how, it's hard for me to understand how you balance it. And I don't know. I'd be curious if you have any thoughts. Yeah, well, I think that that uh, you know, academia has become a lot like the media. It's become very politicized or more and more politicized. And I think in a politicized environment, something like academic freedom struggles uh, for the reasons you just pointed out. So, so the more uh, an environment becomes politicized in which, which uh, people are, are, you know, are divided and, and fragmented in their basic uh, sort of assumptions and outlooks, they're going to receive facts according to those assumptions and outlooks. And it's going to be pretty difficult you know, to bridge it. Uh, and, and I think environments like that tend to be very unwelcoming to um, what you might then call a marketplace of ideas. Um, the last question I want to ask you is a question we ask all of our guests. And it pro- I don't know if we're even switching gears here because this podcast has been pretty philosophical. But it is a little bit philosophical in nature. And I think you've lived a pretty interesting life, obviously. Um, you know, you're well-educated. You've studied a lot of different concepts. You kind of had different careers. And I we might have to bring you back on because we never figured out how you actually got from um, private practice to USD and into teaching. And so we might have to figure that part of your journey out later. But at this point in your life, what do you know for sure? I'm looking at you and you're smiling at me, you know, <laughs> so I'm, I'm tempted to say something flippant. But, um, you know, what do I know for sure? Um, well, what I know, for, what, what I think I know for sure is that there's an ultimate truth and um, that uh, you, you got to struggle towards that ultimate truth. Uh, professor Gary, thank you so much for coming on our podcast. Thank you for being a great professor. I know everyone enjoys you in class. It's um, pretty early at 8 a.m., but uh, I make it to it most days, and uh, it's because of the good teaching and, and what we're learning. So thank you for everything you do for us as students, and thank you for everything you do for the university. So Yeah, thanks. Thanks. Good to be here with you, Michael. Thanks. Thank you for listening to Credit Hour, a weekly thought-provoking conversation with the brightest minds from the University of South Dakota. Listening is 100% of the grades. We hope you enjoyed the episode.